Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with David Ernest and Julia Helwig from the Department of Political Science about the Capitol riots, the end of President Trump's term in office, and the beginning of President Biden's. David, how are you doing this morning? Uh, doing well, Michael. Thank you. I'm enjoying the uh, Martin Luther King holiday, but uh, nonetheless, I'm in my office on this day. Uh, that's probably my fault, so sorry about that. Julia, how are you this morning? I'm doing all right. It's a beautiful day here in Vermillion. Well, um, first of all, thank you both uh, for joining us on um, this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Um, you know, we wanted to talk about the upcoming inauguration and some of the things that have been going on um, just in our political world. I think first the the topic that I think um, is just unavoidable is the riot that happened at the Capitol on January 6th. I don't know, David, if you could just briefly tell us what happened and describe the events that occurred. Well, of course, to understand the events on January 6th, we have to understand the outcome of the election in November. Uh, as uh, almost everybody knows, the uh, Trump administration uh, contested the validity of the results that were uh, announced after the November election. Uh, and during the months of November and December, uh, the Trump campaign made some uh, fairly assertive efforts to uh, challenge the results in court and also to challenge the results of the electoral certification process. January 6th, was the constitutionally mandated date at which the Congress would meet and receive the electoral votes and announce the certification of the election. The Trump administration or the Trump campaign's uh, opposition to those results uh, encouraged uh, his protesters, his, his followers, excuse me, to assemble in Washington on January 6th to demonstrate against the congressional certification of the Electoral College results. And it was those protesters who were present in Washington and those demonstrators who became the uh, the source of the uh, the riot that uh, led to the occupation of the Capitol briefly and the suspension of congressional business and most prominently the suspension of the Congress's consideration of the Electoral College. You know, Julia, you know, protest is such a integral part of you know America. I feel like, but is there a historical precedent for an event like this? Not quite like this. Um, so the Capitol was built back in 1793 or started building it back then. And we've seen uh, violence at the Capitol before. Um, sometimes there have been violence amongst uh, members of Congress themselves in the 1850s. Uh, there was the famous caning of Senator Charles Sumner, who was an abolitionist. Um, but, of course, he wasn't the only one. There was a lot of violence going on between members of Congress at that time in the chambers. Um, and then we've seen a couple of times where we've seen individuals who have uh, planted explosives, for example, in 1915. Um, also in 1971 and 1983, there were bombs uh, that went off at the Capitol. In 1954, there was a, a shooting um, that injured five members of Congress. And then, of course, the famous... Uh, War of 1812, the burning of the Capitol building. But we've never seen anything quite like this, where hundreds of people have stormed the Capitol in an apparent attempted coup or a riot, um, some kind of attempt to sort of overthrow the government or to get members of Congress out um, or, you know, do something to disrupt um, the governing of, of Congress. And so, yes, we've seen violence. 
um, events do happen at the Capitol building, but not something quite like this. You know, I, I'm curious, David, when we look at the, like this specific protest, I mean, what indications do we have that it was sort of just the spontaneous event that occurred versus it was a real organized attack on our electoral system? I think that's the critical question that law enforcement is trying to understand right now. And we have early indications uh, of, of a bit of both. There are some indications that, uh, particularly in social media uh, conversations, that some of the protesters who arrived in Washington uh, came with the intention of perpetrating violence and uh, the intention of finding their way into the Capitol building to disrupt the processes. Uh, but it's not clear that of the hundreds of people who participated in this riot, it's not clear that all of them uh, arrived with the intention of being violent. It may well be that we discover that uh, there was a kind of, uh, you know, famously the phrase is a mob mentality. In, in the presence of others, people behave differently than they would on their own. Uh, it's easier to jaywalk in a crowd than it is to jaywalk as an individual. And so there is a well-known psychological phenomenon whereby would-be uh, peaceful individuals are swept up in the moment to commit acts that they otherwise might not. And it's very early days now. It's very difficult to disentangle who among those perpetrators uh, were deliberate and planned uh, violence and, and planned destruction and who were swept up. And, of course, as arrests are made, uh, undeniably individuals are going to claim that they were swept up in the moment and they did not deliberately intend to cause harm or to cause damage. Um, so these are early days and we'll have to see. You know, Julia, I mean, where would you, where would you rate U.S. democracy right now? I mean, how close were we to, it's like unthinkable to even say it out loud, but like how close were we to like a coup? Like how close did it almost, you know, was it almost to occurring? Well, the first thing I would say is that democracy exists on a spectrum. I think too often we tend to think of it as simply we're a democracy or we're not. And so in that sense, it's very easy to cling on to, well, we're a democracy, we're not that, we're not a dictatorship, we're not an authoritarian regime. Um, but most um, most definitions of democracy, most of the ratings that we have are multiple categories. So some famous ones are the quality index that have a positive 10 to a negative 10 or the Freedom Health Index that goes from 1 through 7. And very few scholars use the sort of dichotomous democracy or not. Um, and so I think it's important to note that democracy most often as it deteriorates does not simply go from a strong democracy to an authoritarian regime, what we tend to see is more of a chipping away of democracy. And that's what we have seen over the past several years, actually, is that we've seen a deterioration in our democracy, and that's evidenced by some of those ratings that have been dropping down. Um, and this can be, this can happen in different ways. There's the liberal part of our democracy, the society part, and then there are democratic institutions. And we've seen deteriorations on both ends. Uh, we've seen deteriorations in our ability to have conversations. We've become more siloed. Um, we've seen um, the media being questioned 
called fake media, fake news. Um, but we've also seen now our institutions. We've seen increased power grabs by the president and now questioning of electoral results. And so our democracy has been weakened, has been deteriorating. Um, and these past few instances over the last couple of months, I think, have been very strong uh, evidence of that. But I think those who have been paying close attention and those who are very familiar with the definitions of democracy and the sort of pillars um, of democracy have been noticing this for quite some time now. You know, I, Julie, I know this is a loaded question, but what responsibility does the president bear with the actions that occurred on January 6th? No, it's a really challenging uh, question. Um, similar to what David is saying, you know, how do we know whether this was a call to violence or it was a call to do something? But I think it's very important to note that when we question electoral results, um, that is really harmful. That is one of the strongest pillars of democracy. If you ask any person on the street what makes us a democracy, people will likely say, well, it's because we go vote, right? But it's not just about that voting. It's about that our vote matters and that's actually taken into account and that we believe that those votes are counted accurately and fairly. And so when we start questioning that, particularly when we question that without evidence, um, that's really harmful. Um, but does the president bear responsibility for the actual attacks? Does he bear responsibility for um, inciting this kind of mentality? I think those are different things. Um, but suffice it to say that members of Congress did believe that, that he, he does bear responsibility, which is why they voted to impeach him for a second time. Um, and so it doesn't matter as much what, what I think I can tell you um, what matters in general is that we have seen uh, his supporters believe that they were following, at least some, following his, uh, his goal um, in, in demonstrating and protesting and maybe creating violence. Um, and members of Congress thought that he had some responsibility in that. So, so I, I guess, yes, I would say that uh, Trump does bear at least some responsibility for the, those events. You know, David, the last time we spoke, um, which was before the election, um, you know, we, we talked about the concept of, like, tipping points um, right. in, in kind of this cycle of, um, you know, partisanship that is going on in the country that, seems to be almost turning into almost like a sectarian violence. I mean, have we reached that, like, tipping point? I mean, how do we come back from this? I, I think that's a good point. And, and, you know, as a citizen, I regret to say that I think we have reached and passed that tipping point. Um, there is a body of scholarship in political science about the nature of political violence and how uh, precarious... Uh, uh, law and order can be once political violence becomes normalized. And um, there are phenomena in uh, other societies that we've observed as political scientists where uh, political violence becomes not a means to change policy, but it becomes an end in itself. And uh, once political violence becomes part of a routine, uh, it's, it's hard to put the proverbial genie back in the bottle. 
And the concern I have is that uh, this is now going to be a normal part of our politics uh, until there is consistent, uniform consensus among our political leadership that denounces violence. It's, in retrospect, I think, what happened on January 6th is not entirely surprising. Um, what happened on January 6th appears to be part of a pattern that goes back a decade or more. Um, there are evident previous episodes in the United States of uh, political violence that have occurred outside of Washington, and they typically occurred uh, in areas that don't garner mass media attention. But there was the uh, Cliven Bundy and his family's uh, opposition to federal land policy, um, his family's occupation of federal lands in Oregon that resulted in the death of one of his family members. There were the uh, protesters in uh, Michigan who stormed and occupied the state house in Michigan in a, in a uh, sort of a precedent for what we observed on January 6th. There has been a, a growing trend of violence against political institutions, against the symbols and buildings of our democracy that has been going on for some time. And I think what we've discovered is that that is now normalized and accepted as part of our political process. And I think it's going to be like this for a while. You know, I think one thing that was interesting in the aftermath um, of the of the riots that occurred was that social media companies um, started to ban the president from their platforms. Uh, and I'm curious what you both think are maybe some of the legal and political dimensions of these decisions. What type of impact will it have on the platforms? What maybe type of impact does it have on concepts that we hold dear, like freedom of speech, um, assembly, things like that? Um, I would say that's really important to note that this is not really a First Amendment issue. Um, these are private companies that are choosing to, well, actually following their own um, bylaws that, that everyone kind of scrolls through quickly um, and clicks up stuff. Um, and so this is not government seeking to curb anyone's voice, seeking to um, curb anyone's protected speech. Um, this is private companies uh, saying that they don't want their own platforms to be used uh, to incite violence or to organize to create violence or um, to, uh, again, to serve as a platform for uh, insurrection. Um, so it's not a First Amendment issue. Um, the other dimensions here, too, though, are the ability to organize and have those conversations, right? So we know that social media platforms were used to, to organize, to have people come together and create caravans and buses and things like that to uh, go to Washington, D.C., we also know that social media can have a very siloing effect, a very polarizing effect. And so this is, creates an ability to shut down some of that, uh, potentially. Um, but also, one thing, one platform, I guess, that people haven't talked about as much, that people question was Shopify, which is a shopping addition that you can have to your website. And they have prevented the sale of um, 
Trump campaign apparel and uh, posters and flags and things like that. Um, and so I think there are a lot of different implications here where I'm hoping um, that we will, I guess, quench any, any new um, events. And I think it's important to note here we are on January 18th and there was discussion about further protests on the 17th yesterday. And we didn't really see any violence. We saw a couple of spots where a few people showed up. Um, there was one notable example in Trenton, New Jersey, where there was a poster left behind by the single person who came to protest. I uh, didn't realize that nobody else was coming. Um, whether that's a social media uh, banning effect or if it's a law enforcement ramping up effect, um, I'm not sure, probably both. Um, but I do think that that has had some effect. David, what do you think of, of social media companies banning um, the president from operating on certain platforms? So I, I think Julia has identified precisely the dimensions of this question, and I concur with her assessment that this is not a First Amendment issue. The analogy would be, suppose I took a soapbox and I stood in the middle of the grocery store and started expressing my political opinions. Uh, would the owners of the grocery store have the right to have me removed? Of course. It's a, it's a, it's a privately owned uh, space and a privately owned enterprise. And it's not permissible for me to uh, occupy a space without their permission. And so, uh, likewise, the, the social media companies are private enterprise. They are, you know, commercial companies. These are not public spaces. But the problem, I think that this, I think there are really two political dimensions to this that, that the banning has highlighted. Number one is um, social media companies now are extremely powerful. And how do we regulate them or how do they regulate themselves to assure that the services that they provide are socially beneficial and not socially harmful? And whether they regulate themselves or whether they are regulated by law and acts of Congress is, uh, I think, a pressing political question that will be debated in the coming years. But I think the more fundamental question is, uh, how, do we no longer have public spaces? Um, you know, the, the, one of the great civic spaces in the history of democracy is Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park in London. And on any given Sunday, one can go to Speaker's Corner in London, and any number of citizens will be there standing literally on their soapboxes, from which the term comes, and will be sharing their opinions about all matters concerning democracy and society. It's a public space where free, free expression is practiced. We increasingly seem to be conflating our public spaces with our commercial spaces. Twitter is not about freedom of expression. Twitter is about making money. Facebook is not about freedom of expression. Facebook is about making money. And our society has become so uh, riven across ideological, cultural, geographic lines that we no longer seem to identify a common public space in which we can have this discourse. And that's the thing that I think, that's one of those corrosive uh, consequences for democracy that Julie was talking about earlier. Democracy has this slow march away from civil practice, civil discord, and democratic norms. And I think the absence of a common public space that we all accept as a medium for the expression of our values 
I think that's very detrimental to the practice of our democracy. You know, I, I, I know we brought up impeachment. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Julia. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also say, though, that this is frankly going to piss a lot of people off. Yeah. Right? I think um, as much as it can sort of shut down some of those silos, a lot of those people who were enjoying those silos and enjoying those um, private, public kinds of spaces are going to be really angered um, and going to feel that it's whether it's big business or big government, sometimes people can't quite distinguish the two. They just don't know that there's some force or some entity shutting down what they see as their right to speak um, or as the president's right to speak. Um, of course, the president has many other avenues and had so well before the, the invention of social media to speak uh, to the public. But it is going to anger a lot of people, and especially those people who already were feeling the anger, they're feeling left behind. Um, and, you know, we keep sort of dancing around this this term, but this is a populist mentality, um, even before it's a mob mentality. Um, and the populist mentality is one where um, they feel like they, they, as regular citizens, have been forgotten about and have been shut down and have been shut out from government. And so this further makes them feel like they have no place um, in government or in society, according to those in power. You know, Julia, that I found that really interesting. And it, it, I, I agree, right? I mean, especially when you, you know, add in the elements of like the QAnon and some of the, you know, conspiracy theory um, type fringes that have been maybe associated with these elements. Now, I don't know how much like truth there is in, in, in those sorts of um, accusations that, you know, that conspiracy theories really drove a lot of the traffic to the Capitol and things like that. But it does, I, I agree, that's something that I thought of. If you believe there's a global conspiracy out there to do whatever, and then a giant tech company kicks you off Twitter, is it almost like confirmation bias? Is that proof to you that there is this global conspiracy out to get you, right? I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Do we need to, I don't know, approach these people? Do you try to relegate them to dark corners of the internet so their influence can't spread? I mean, what is the best way to approach somebody who, you know, thinks a pizza parlor shop, you know, somewhere in the South is running like a pedophilia ring that implicates all of our, you know, national politicians? I mean, like, how do you, how do you approach that issue? Well, it's really hard to change someone's mind and probably the worst way to try to change someone's mind is to tell them your point of view um, and tell them that you're right because that's only going to further make them feel that they were correct in the first place um, but I do think there are some things that we as a society can do and one big thing that, to me from my perspective is that we need to stop elevating I guess equal voices or elevating um all opinions. We've had this sort of tendency to let's listen to both sides, um, let's listen to what everyone has to say. Um, and in the past, we used to relegate extremist views into the extreme. Um, and now we sort of tried to open up, well, let's see the pros and cons, let's see two sides, both sides, um, let's listen to everyone. 
Um, and that's really problematic because it elevates voices that should be, uh, appropriately should be relegated to the extreme. Um, we didn't used to allow for a listen to what the fascists have to say. Let's listen to what the Nazis have to say. That's an extreme, perhaps, example. But I don't think it's too far off. Um, when we allow for, um, you know, science-denying um election conspiracies, all those kinds of voices to be elevated to the same level as facts um, or for opinion-based individuals to be elevated to the same level as expert um, arguments, I think that's really, really problematic. Um, and so the more that we can do, we as a society, um, we as in um, our media, and the government as well, um, and perhaps especially the media, um, the more that, that we can do to encourage voices that are fact-based, um, expert-based, and uh, stop continuing to allow for these um, extreme voices to be elevated. I think, I think that would do a lot. Um, part of this kind of populism mentality has been to to not allow expert opinions to carry more weight, right? Everyone should be equal. We should listen to everyone. Um, and that is, of course, a really important part of democracy, right? Everyone gets the voice, vote. Everyone gets to have their voice heard. But um, there needs to be a difference when we're looking at policy decisions, when we're looking at the media, trying to explain an issue, for example. Um, there, there just needs to be some sort of stop gaps to prevent those extremist, non-fact-based opinions from being shared out there. You know, David, what do you think about the move towards extremism? I mean, is that just social media? How, how do you think that we can approach the issue? Well, I, I, I don't think it's just social media. I think it's the confluence of social media with other factors. And, uh, you know, Julia was talking about um, the importance of science, in fact, in our public discourse. And, and as, as I was listening to her answer, I was thinking of the famous quote from uh, former Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who famously said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your, your own facts. And uh, part of the challenge that we have these days is that um, our elected and appointed leadership uh, no longer operate from a common set of facts. And to me, the way we uh, grow as a society beyond some of these uh, conspiracy theories and some of these divisive ideas is that our, our, our elected and appointed leaders um, exercise leadership. And they exercise leadership uh, by demonstrating a shared commitment to some basic values and basic ideas, including the idea of objective fact and science. And if our elected leadership can speak with one voice on those uh, questions, then I think um, some of these more, um, you know, disprove, uh, you know, sort of uh, con you know, conspiracy theories that are just uh, uh, very difficult to combat. I think a, a leadership speaking with one, one voice can uh, go a long way towards preventing that. The very nature of a conspiracy theory is that there is no evidence that will disprove the theory, right? Every piece of contrary uh, information becomes incorporated into the theory itself. 
So it's impossible to disprove a conspiracy theory by logic. The only way to, to combat a conspiracy theory is by having uh, powerful, consistent, effective messaging that says this is not the case. Well, and I also think you have to have then powerful, consistent you know, processes and institutions that work, right? I mean, that that's part of my worry um, is that you kind of have the, I think, you know, destruction of thought at the same time you have, you know, institutions that matter sort of crumbling as well. I mean, we, we see that with the pandemic response in the United States. I mean, it, it's hard to trust institutions when they don't seem to be delivering on, you know, promises that are made, either as a result of, you know, politicians overpromising or, or um, you know, more systemic issues that prevent, you know, our systems from working very well. Um, you know, to transition here for a second, I, I, I know we wanted to talk about impeachment at the end, but just to talk about President-elect Biden's inauguration, it's coming up on January 20th. Um, Julia, what is the significance or the symbolism of an inauguration of a new president? I mean, why does an event like this even matter? Well, the inauguration is the formal, it's really the embodiment of that very important democratic pillar of transition of power. Right, so this is the, the visual moment when we see a previous president stepping down and the new president who was elected by the people coming in. It really is, um, yeah, the, the embodiment, uh, the symbolic visual of what democracy truly looks like. Um, and there are some that have suggested that it's this transition that really marks the democracy. It's not just that we vote. Um, it's not just that we have competition. It's not just that we have um freedom, speech, and assembly, and all those kinds of things. But it's that one president, one governing entity can leave, and another one can come in, um, and we don't have any disruption in between. Right? There's no um, anarchy, if you will, in between uh, the two presidents. And that is really, really important. Um, for contrast, um, Uganda recently had elections, and uh, their president won his sixth term. Um, so he's been president for 35 years now, something like that. Um, and what we saw there was, of course, what we usually see in these kinds of um, electoral authoritarian regimes where people vote, but the same person wins over and over again. He won in a landslide election with nearly 60% of votes. And so there's no transition of power. It's the same person over and over again. Everybody votes. It's Seems like uh, the votes are counted. Um, of course, there's huge outcry of um, fraud and rigging and all these kinds of things. But you still have the same person come in over and over again. And that is really what marks the authoritarian regime, right? They actually do have votes and elections. But what really marks the democracy and what really is that embodiment is that when the previous president's term is up. He, in this case, leaves gracefully, and a new president is inaugurated. Um, and so that's why we celebrate it with fanfare. It's really not a celebration and shouldn't be a celebration of the person 
or the two persons, the president's vice president, coming into office. It really is a celebration of democracy and a celebration of the transition of power. You know, speaking of... And, if, Mike, Michael, if I can just build on that for a second. Yeah, for um, sure. Uh, you know, once again, I think Julia has, has highlighted a really important uh, concept about the nature of democracy. Political scientist Valerie Bunce once very, uh, uh, I think, insightfully talked about the difference between outcome and procedure. And she said the very nature of a democracy is you have uncertain outcomes but certain procedures. And what she meant by that is uh, elections are contested. You never know for sure who's going to win, but the procedures through which we select our, our leaders are certain. That is, they are consistent, constant, and trustworthy. So she talks about democracies as uncertainty of outcomes and certainty of procedures. Authoritarian states are the opposite. And as Julia was talking about Uganda, it was the classic example where you get certainty of outcomes. You know who's going to win, but you have uncertainty of procedures. You have no idea how these political mechanisms work in an authoritarian state. The inauguration is a celebration of procedure. It's a celebration of the law and order and process of our democracy. It's not a celebration of a person or even two people. And the rituals that we have to celebrate and reassure our public about our procedures, I think, are every bit as important to our democracy as the civic acts of uh, a front porch conversation, uh, going to the polling place, or donating to a political campaign. So January 20th is extremely important to democracy for that you know, everyone always talks about after the inauguration, the first 100 days of a new president's administration. Um, I, I'm curious, David, I mean, what, you know, obviously the, the I think the pandemic and the coronavirus is going to take precedent. President Biden has talked about a new stimulus package um, to help with the economic fallout from the pandemic. I mean, what do you see from President Biden's first 100 days in office? That's that's a really interesting question, Michael. I know we're going to turn to the discussion of uh, of the uh, impeachment here in a minute and how that might complicate President Biden's first hundred days. Uh, President Biden and his his uh, uh, administration leaders have already been publicly stating about the importance of addressing what they're calling the compounding crises. You know, these many crises that are happening simultaneously. Uh, you know, one crisis, of course, is the pandemic and the public health uh, concerns. Uh, a second crisis is the economics that, uh, you know, the, the recession and, and uh, job loss, homelessness that we're seeing as a consequence of the pandemic. And then, of course, there is the crisis of trust in our political institutions. And so I think the first 100 days will be focused in part on practical solutions to those problems, you know, 100 million vaccines in 100 days. But it will also be focused on messaging, on, on reassuring the public that we're making progress against the pandemic, that we're making progress on protecting families and protecting their homes and their jobs. And, uh, and so I think the 100 days is as much about um, public perception and um, building trust in the new administration as it is about some of these practical steps with vaccines and, and uh, economic relief. Um, you know, I, if I may speak a little bit more specifically too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Michael, um, I think Biden has laid out, um, a few different things that he wants to do. Um, and some of those will be through executive orders, uh, that he's planned. 
um, including some uh, COVID-related issues, uh, such as extending uh, the student debt relief that Trump um, and Betsy DeVos had already implemented last year. So extending those, um, he's also discussed a possible mask mandate um, and vaccination increases and accessibility to those vaccines. But then, of course, there's the sort of separate thing, which is his agenda for pushing items in Congress. So there are the things that Biden wants to do himself that he can do through executive orders that is directing the bureaucracy to do something. Um, and then there is his agenda for what he hopes to accomplish with Congress, since there will be unified government um, in the coming Congress, meaning that both of the branches of Congress, both the House of Representatives and the Senate, as well as the presidency, will all be held by Democrats. Now, that's by a slim margin because we really have a 50-50 split in the Senate, but with Vice President Harris um, being able to cast that deciding vote. And so there are some issues like minimum wage, affordable college, um, enhancing the Affordable Care Act, issues of housing, issues of immigration, um, that he hopes to tackle with Congress. You know, Julia, you brought up the Georgia Senate races. Going into Tuesday, I guess I, you know, looking at various news sources, thought that the Democrats were going to fall short in Georgia. I'm curious what you made of um, both Democratic Senate candidates winning. And you've talked a little bit about the impact that that will have um you know, in terms of allowing uh, President Biden to maybe push his agenda a little bit harder. But what type of impact do you think that will have on this upcoming Congress? Well, it's a little bit difficult to say, actually. On the one hand, this should be sort of a, a slam dunk, right? You have um, all three branches. They should have a clear agenda, and they can just hit all of those things. Um but we also know that Congress doesn't quite work that effectively, even when it appears that they could. Um, so we know that members of Congress are mostly interested in ge- getting reelected. And so many of these members are in some fairly competitive and fairly volatile districts, and they'll want to make sure that they are keeping their voters happy. Um, and so there will be some regional and some ideological differences that will need to be played out in the bill writing process. So even if they all roll call votes um, along with the party, there's going to be some finessing and some um, working through what those bills actually look like before they get um, onto the chamber floor for a vote. And so it's not quite a slam dunk um, as one might predict. Um, Also, the challenges in the Senate. Uh, typically, the vice president doesn't really need to be at the Capitol, doesn't need to be in D.C. and can, can do other things, um, can work on other issues. Um, and in this case, uh, the vice president-elect Harris was going to have to be precisely where she was before in the Senate and presiding over um, and, again, casting that potentially deciding vote. Um, and so it's going to be really contentious and really difficult still in the working process of putting the legislation together, but ultimately we should be able to see more legislation pass through, obviously, than in a divided government situation. Still only about uh, an average of 3% of bills that are written are actually passed into law. 
But with a unified government, we might get up to some higher single digits or even the 10% mark, but we'll see. Um, if we could you know, transition to impeachment, I don't want to take up too much more of both of your time. Um, the House moved to impeach President Trump last week. He's the first president, from my understanding, that's been impeached twice now in American um, history. I, I, the articles of impeachment, from my understanding, will now move to the Senate, where the Senate will have to hold a trial. I guess, what type of process will now take place, and what are some of the implications of it? Um, David, I don't know if you want to lead us off. Sure. Um, Julie can talk much more in detail about the actual uh, legislative processes and how the Senate will actually conduct the trial. Uh, but I think there are sort of two big picture questions that uh, uh, are, are coming out of the impeachment, the forthcoming impeachment trial. A, a, a reasonable question that I think any citizen would ask is, why would you impeach a president who is on his way out? What are the purposes of an impeachment against uh, a president who is no longer sitting uh, as President Trump will no longer be after uh, noon on Wednesday? And I think there are really two purposes behind the impeachment trial. Uh, number one is to, if necessary, if the Senate decides, to um, uh, determine that, that, that Donald Trump can no longer run for public office once again. Uh, one possibility of impeachment would be the Senate's finding that he is no longer eligible to serve in public office. So that would be a very practical and, uh, and, and uh, a practical outcome that would have serious political consequences, I think, for the Republican Party and for the 2024 presidential election. But I think the other outcome, uh, the other purpose, is really uh, a, a symbolic and a normative one, which is to for the Senate to publicly state the behavior associated with January 6th is not acceptable in a republic, in a democratic republic. Um, there was this tendency during President Trump's first impeachment to equate the process to a trial. And while there is uh, some procedural similarity to a trial, I think the, the analogy is misleading because it suggests that the evidentiary standards and principles of law will be the deciding factors in the outcome of the proceedings. Um, this is not a trial, and this is not a determination of questions of law or criminality. It's a question of democratic responsibility and accountability. And that's a much more nebulous uh, standard for adjudication for the senators. Uh, and yet it would be perfectly appropriate for the senators to determine that although the president did nothing wrong criminally, he did abdicate his constitutional duties as the chief executive officer of the United States. And so I think the second purpose is really about questions of what is, uh, you know, what are the standards we wish to hold for our president? And that's a highly symbolic and important decision that the Senate will have to make. Julie, what do you make of, of both the process that will take place now in the Senate and maybe some of the political dynamics um, that will result from the impeachment trial? Well, I absolutely agree with everything that David said. I think it's hard to understate the importance of that accountability factor in democracy. Um, if we're not holding a president accountable for these events, then, then what would we hold the president accountable for? Um, and just to be clear on the, the process there, right, so we have that impeachment that's already happened, and then it's moving on to Senate where they can convict. Uh, there is a separate vote for uh, barring Trump from holding future office. 
And so this sort of a multi-step process here that, that has to be gone through. Um, and of course, we've never gotten to that point before. So we're sort of in, in uncharted territories here, not only with uh, the, um, the second impeachment, but with a much higher potential, I think, for conviction than we've seen in the past. Perhaps, um, aside from Nixon, who of course resigned before he was convicted, it was expected, highly expected conviction. Um, and so how might this affect the future? I think, um, again, for his supporters, it's going to be detrimental and potentially even pushing them even farther into the extremes and farther in distrust of government. On the other hand, I think there's a rather large majority, not only of Democrats, but uh, but your sort of traditional conservative Republicans who want to see more accountability and will have a greater trusting government for taking action. Um, and I think that's going to reveal a really significant split, which I think it already has within the Republican Party. And so I think that's going to be um, very important for the next four years, just in general, uh, but also, as David hinted at, for the 2024 presidential election, what kinds of Republican potential nominees are we going to see? And so this kind of level of polarization while still ha- between the two parties, while still having really a fractured Republican Party, is going to be very difficult. Again, as I was saying, with building uh, new legislation, I think it's going to be very difficult for the Senate in particular to kind of get to the same page. Once they vote, it might be a bit clearer, but I think it's going to be very difficult for uh, Republicans to work together and for Democrats and Republicans uh, to work together. Uh, and for us as a society, maybe to even heal. Um, I think we have a lot of challenges ahead of us. You know, I agree. I mean, it just makes me think of, you know, you hear all these calls for unity and then I think it becomes a you know discussion about accountability versus unity. I almost look at it as like opportunity cost. I mean, my one worry with impeachment is just the time it will consume when there are so many other pressing priorities. And I know other commentators have discussed how this might negati- negatively influence President um, you know, Biden's agenda. Um, you also figure in just the confirmation process for um, department heads and how that hasn't started yet. I mean, it, it, it's hard to, I know, evaluate it, but what do you make a, a, of that calculus right now that the Biden administration is having to make and maybe congressional Democrats and Republicans? You know, obviously the riot at the Capitol was a historic, hopefully a, an anomaly, but certainly a historic event. You, it doesn't seem like you can just move on from it without doing anything right. But we have so many other, you know, pressing issues with the pandemic and the economy. I mean, how how can our legislators and and you know agencies and, and just government function with so much chaos going on? I don't even know if there's a question in there, but I, I don't know, David or Julia, if you could par- try to parse my my question and, and see if you can figure out an answer to it. Well, I'll, I'll jump in, and maybe Julia, as our congressional expert, can provide a little more detail. Uh, you know, but I think one of the interesting questions, real practical questions that you're raising, Michael, is how is the Senate going to do its business? How is it going to do the business of approving cabinet nominees, uh, initiating legislation, 
undertaking all of the routine work while at the same time pursuing a uh, an impeachment trial against uh, former President uh, Trump. And, um, you know, as you know, there's a lot of pressing business for the country and for the Senate. And there is some concern that the necessities of the impeachment trial will uh, actually impede the ability of President-elect Biden to implement his agenda. And maybe Julia can talk about the process in the Senate and whether or not they can balance those competing demands. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it's going to be a difficult decision, no doubt, for anyone. Um, and I think you're going to see some Republicans who are going to want to push to just get this over with, uh, while you're going to see some Republicans uh, using it as a strategy to delay. We've already said it's Steve McConnell, um, who's an excellent strategist. He really understands how, um, how Congress works how legislation works. And so he's going to use this as a, I think, potential delay in implementing um, a lot of policies. Ultimately, then, it may just be that. It may just be a delay um, in, in being able to implement anything. Um, but as I was saying before, I think that there's going to be a lot of work in um, building new relationships and uh, creating new legislation. I think you're going to see um, more moderate uh, work. Of course, Biden himself has a lot of experience um, as, uh, as a politician, as a member of Congress, and actually has quite a bit as, um, of experience in the White House as well as former vice president. Um, and so I think we're going to see a, a very strategic, uh, for the most part, Congress uh, that's going to, yes, have to balance these demands. Um, and I think every member of Congress is trying to figure this out themselves. Uh, and they're going to strategically delay and they're going to strategically push for uh, legislation, depending on your, your party and your preferences. Um, they're also going to be listening to their constituents. I think they know that people want to see things happen. Even when people hate what Congress is doing, they still prefer when Congress does something over when Congress does nothing. Um, and so there's going to be a, a lot of a lot of challenges, no doubt, for for these members um, in figuring out how do we create legislation, how do we take action, and ultimately how do we get reelected again in two years for the most part. Um, David, Julia, I, you know, to I guess kind of conclude our conversation here, I. Not to continue to talk about um, President Trump, but it, it just makes me think. I mean, I think so much of the last four years, um, you know, the president always has a outsized influence on you know political discourse. But I think this president in particular, um, you know, sucks the oxygen out of the room, so to speak, um, of almost any other conversation that that we might be having in the country. I am curious with him leaving office. And I know so much of this probably depends on the impeachment and what he himself chooses to do in a sort of post-presidential career. But where do you think politics goes um, if President Trump sort of steps to the side? Or, or do you think that that's a pol possibility? Do you think that we're going to see his influence carry forward for years to come? David, if you want to start off with that. Sure, I'll, I'll start us off. Um, I, I, I think that's the right question. If, if Donald Trump chooses to remain involved in politics, 
then I think he will remain uh, an outsized influence in the Republican Party. And I think it creates some electoral problems for the Republican Party. I think the Republican Party has an existential debate about whether uh, the unity of the party uh, is is more important than uh, the principles of constitutional governance. And um, there's a you know, the, the interesting if Donald Trump remains active in politics, the interesting question is what happens to the Republican Party. There is some evidence that there are some uh, fissures emerging uh, within the party. Uh, Senator Ben Sass wrote a very thoughtful and critical essay this weekend in the Atlantic magazine that uh, called for the Republican Party to rid itself of the conspiracy theory wing of the party. And so if Donald Trump remains active, then the dynamics of the Republican Party, I think, will will be sort of the most important political question for the next two to four years. Julie, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for the sort of core uh, traditional conservatives, the, the McConnells, the Sass, the um, others who have kind of called for, let's get back to where we were, let's get back to our states' rights, constitutional, law and order kind of base. And it's going to be very difficult for them to push that any further if there's still a Trump and a populist uh, wing of the party. But let's talk about the other end. What happens if Trump does set aside? And we've actually seen a bit of evidence of that. He's already seeing stuff when it comes to the inauguration, suggestions showing that um, he plans to retreat to um, one of his uh, various estates. And so I think there's some evidence to suggest that he is sort of uh, done with this chapter. And if that's the case, I think what we've seen in Biden and what we might expect from a Biden presidency is that Biden is uh, a fairly moderate, is a you know lifelong politician. Um, he has long had friends on on both sides of the aisle, so to say. Um, has numerous relationships there. So ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that this should be um, perhaps, hopefully, a rather uneventful uh, presidency. Um, and so I've seen calls for make politics boring again, make politics <laughs> uneventful again. Um, and so I think with a, a Biden strategic uh, presidency, there's real potential for for making politics uneventful again. Um, David, Julie, I just want to thank you again for joining us today. I don't know, Julie, do you have any um, concluding thoughts? And then I'll ask David the same question. Um, I don't think so. I think you really uh, captured uh, all the important parts. I think this was really great. Awesome. David, do you have any p- parting thoughts, I guess, to leave us with on, on where we're at in politics right now? Sure. Uh, earlier today, I, I raised the question of do we have any public spaces for dialogue anymore? And I would say that um, podcasts like this are an invaluable public service to our citizens and to our communities because it's in spaces like this that we can have uh, a, a civil dialogue that I think bridges divides and, and helps us all understand and hopefully helps us uh, mend some of the wounds of the last uh, week and the last uh, couple of years. No, I hope so too. So thank you both again and um, enjoy the week. Enjoy Inauguration Week. Enjoy the holiday today and I hope you both are doing well. Thank you, Michael. Be well. Thank you so much.